Let me ask you this question. What do you think of when you hear this statement, God has a plan for your life? Now, what is the first thing that comes to your mind? If I were speaking to a group of college students tonight and I stood up and made that statement, God has a plan for your life, I'll guarantee you what that group of students would be thinking. They would be thinking, who do I get to marry? That's what they would be thinking. Can I marry her or can I date him? Or That's what they would begin thinking because that's part of God's plan for most people's life. Not for everyone's life, but for most people's life. And so if you're 18, 19, 20, 21 and you hear that God has a plan, you naturally would think about that. I'll tell you what else those college age students might think about. They would be thinking about, God has a plan for my life. I wonder what that means as far as my career path. Will I go into the field of medicine or law? Will I go into education? Will I learn a craft and master that craft and maybe one day even own my own company? And so 20-year-olds, if they hear that God has a plan for their life, they're going to be thinking about their career and their vocation. If I were speaking tonight to a group of 24, 25, 26-year-olds, maybe just married or just out of college, just getting their first job and putting a little money away, and I said to them, God has a plan for your life. Many of them would begin to think, well, we do have some discretionary money coming in now, and so maybe God would want us to buy a house, and, and uh, maybe that's part of God's plan for, for our life. If I were speaking tonight to a group of widows, and I said to those ladies, God has a plan for your life, what would they think? Well, some of those ladies who've been married 60 and 65 years who have recently lost their husbands, they would think this, he's right, God does have a plan for my life. God has been faithful to me all these years, and as far as the future goes, having lost my husband of that many years, I don't know what God's plan for my life might be, but I do believe that God has a plan for my life. Now, I say all that tonight to say, when you hear the statement, God has a plan for your life, that statement applies to every single season of life. And all those thoughts, a spouse, a job, a career path, a house, all these types of things, God's provision, even into our latter years, God has a plan for all of that. But hear me very carefully tonight, God's ultimate plan for all of our lives is none of that. The most important thing in your life is not any of those things I've just mentioned, as important as all of those things are. The most important thing, God's ultimate plan for your life and mine, is that we would be conformed into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. That's God's plan. That's God's will. And that is more important to God than all that other stuff combined. Now, we're in Philippians, but I want us to begin tonight in the book of Romans. Can we go to Romans chapter 8? This is a familiar passage, a familiar chapter, and a very familiar verse. But I want us to see how in Romans 8, Paul said the same thing I just said in a different way. Now, we're familiar, most of us are, with verse 28. In fact, Romans 8, 28 may be the most important verse in all the Bible for Christians. There are other ones that are just as important, but Romans 8, 28 is, is very important. Notice what he says. Paul said, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And so that verse encourages us during those seasons of life where bad things happen and confusing things happen and unfair things happen and things happen to us that, that just don't seem to even fit in with God's plan for our life. Sometimes in life you might even go through something and you say, how could God even have allowed me to go through that? How, how could in any way, there any, any, how could any good come out of that? For example, Sometimes when we read that verse, maybe you've just lost your job, 
and you read Romans 8, 28, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. You might think, well, that must mean that God has a better job for me. And that very well may be the case. But that's not the good Paul is talking about here. Sometimes a person's house could burn down. And they think, man, this is bad. And yet Romans 8, 28 says all things work together for good. It doesn't say that all things are good. Some things are bad, but it says they work together for good. So a person reads Romans 8, 28, and they say, well, my house is burned down, and that must mean the good is I'm going to get a newer, certainly it'd be a newer house and a better house. Well, that might be true. The good here uh, certainly can have an earthly application. I think about Joseph in the Old Testament. Most of us are familiar with his story, this, this son of Jacob, this, this Jewish boy who was his, favorite, his father's favorite son. And when he got to be about 17 years of age, his father gave him a beautiful jacket, a coat of many colors because he loved Joseph so much. And his brothers saw this and they became envious and they thought, who does he think he is? getting our father's attention more than what we are. And so, you know the story, they threw him into a pit, left him for dead. One of the brothers said, we shouldn't do this, let's pull him out. They pulled him out of the pit. They sold him to some slave traders going down to Egypt. He got down there. He was falsely accused of rape. I mean, Joseph's life was going from bad to worse. Thrown in prison, forgotten by a friend. Finally, he was summoned by Pharaoh out of that dungeon And Joseph became the prime minister of all Egypt. He became the second most powerful person in the whole nation. And God used him to save a lot of people's life. And at the end of his story, when his brothers were trying their best to apologize to him for how they had treated him, Joseph said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. In other words, there was an earthly good, an earthly application to the fact that God brings good out of bad. But in Romans 8 and verse 28, that's not, the, that's not primarily the good that Paul is talking about here. You say, well, John, if it's, if it's not a, a better job or a, a better house or a better situation, or what is the good? Verse 29 tells us what the good is. For whom God foreknew, that is, God knew you before you were born. Whom God foreknew, he also predestined. Now, we hear a lot about predestination. I preached on this a while back. But notice that what, what predestination is here. To be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. No one is predestined to go to hell. Friend, Christians are predestined to be formed and conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And so this is the ultimate good, that whatever we go through in life, If we respond properly, that God will use that to help us become more like Jesus. Now, that said, let's turn to the book of Philippians. Chapter number 3, we're working our way through this uh, very uh, encouraging letter that Paul has written for us from a a Roman prison. And tonight in Philippians chapter 3, what we find here, we find four keys to Christ-likeness. In other words, God is the one who is going to make us like Jesus, but we have a part in that. Just like God is the one who saves us. We don't save ourselves, but we have a part in salvation. We have to repent of our sins. We have to trust Christ. We have to say yes to him. He's calling us. We have to 
to respond to that. So just like we have a role in salvation, we don't save ourselves. God does that, but we have to participate. We have a role in this sanctification process, becoming like Christ. And as I have studied this passage, I've just made three little obser- four little observations here about what we can do to be more like Jesus. And it begins with an honest confession. An honest confession. And this is so important. We don't want to skip over this. Philippians chapter 3, look in verse 12. This is Paul now. As far as I'm concerned, the greatest Christian who ever lived. And notice what he says about himself. Not that I have already attained or am already perfect. What was Paul saying? Paul was saying, I'm not there yet. I am still a work in progress. Now, when I read these words coming from the mouth of Paul, not that I have already attained or I'm already perfected, I say, well, neither have I. And I can identify with Paul, and I say, Paul, I am so glad that you have, uh, that you have said that, that God is, was still working on Paul, and God is still working on us. And as every preacher in the world has always said, we're not what we're going to be, but thank God we're not what we used to be. Well, we are thankful that we're not what we used to be. But I'm very mindful of this fact. I'm not what I ought to be, and I'm not what I'm going to be. One of these days, I will be just like Jesus. But I'm not there yet. I'm a work in progress, and so are you. Turn to the person next to you and say, I'm a work in progress. Tell them that right now. Now say, God, say I'm not perfect. Tell them, say, I'm not perfect. Now say, no kidding, no kidding. I never thought that you were. But I think it's interesting to me, as we think about becoming like Jesus, It begins with an honest confession that we're not there yet, that we're not like Jesus. And I think it's so easy, if we're not careful, for us to think that maybe because we've been saved X number of years, or because we've been in the church for so long, or maybe because we have learned so many verses in the Bible, or we know so much about the Bible, it's easy for us to think many times that we're farther along than we are. And... It's helpful for me. I, you know, Jesus is clear. If we humble ourselves, God will exalt us. But if we exalt ourselves, God will humble us. Now, I'm going to give you an illustration about this tonight, and I've given this illustration one other time in the past. It's interesting, and um, I, I'll, just, I'll just give you my, my thought on this. In the 1990s, a movement developed, it emerged uh, among Christian men known as promise keepers. And it started, at least in part, at the University of Colorado, where the head football coach at that time kind of the, became the spokesperson, the president, and the leader of that movement. And many, many of you have been to Promise Keepers events, as have I, and you know what happened. They, uh, men would gather in large stadiums and worship God. It was it's just, just beautiful hearing men, tens of thousands of men, singing the old hymns. And then they brought in some of the greatest speakers in all the nation to preach and challenge men to be godly men and to be the leaders in their homes and to be the leaders in their church. And it was a, it was a powerful thing. In fact, my first day on the job in Pasadena was June the 1st, 1995. And it was on a Friday, as I remember. And that night, Promise Keepers was having a conference at the Astrodome. And so we took a bus from First Baptist and we went down to the dome and there we were with 70,000 men, and it was an unbelievable experience, a wonderful experience, and I was blessed. Not too long after that, the men on our church staff, we went to Atlanta, 
and they had a special promise keepers for men in ministry. And so there we were in Atlanta, and we were being blessed. And I still remember some of the speakers and some of the things that I learned, and, and I was so blessed by promise keepers. So I don't have anything but, but good to say about promise keepers. I, I mean, I, I'm a supporter. I went to it, and I was blessed by it. So I feel like I can say what I'm about to say. One of the things that concerned me with promise keepers is that they came out with this little caption. And it was a good, it's, it's not bad, but it never sat well with me. And the caption was, men of integrity. And so they printed t-shirts and they printed caps and everybody's wearing a shirt that says, men of integrity. You say, well, what's wrong with wearing a shirt that says, men of integrity? Well, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm saying there's a danger in that. For example, let's just take me. Had I started wearing a shirt that said, men of integrity, and had I started thinking, I'm a man of integrity, there is the danger that pride has crept in. And I can remember, this is 1995, this has been almost 30 years ago, I remember thinking, I wish the shirt said, seeking to become men of integrity. Let me ask you this. Would you walk in Walmart tonight with a t-shirt on that said, I am honest? Would you? Would you walk? I mean, we should be honest. I'm not against integrity or honesty. Would you walk in Walmart tonight with a t-shirt on that said, I always tell the truth? I can't remember if it was Emerson or what poet said it, but he said this. He's talking about a group of people who had come to his house, and they were telling how honest they were. And this poet said, the louder they talked of their honor, the faster we counted our spoons. <laughs> I mean, if somebody's telling you how honest they are, it makes you wonder, why are you trying to convince me that you're honest? Why don't you just be honest? So I'm not saying that Promise Keepers did anything wrong with the caption. That was a marketing thing, and I realized that if you had something that said seeking to become men of integrity, it's too long, it's not catchy, it loses its punch. But I'm saying this, you would ha- whether you agree with what I said or disagreed, you would have to agree with this. There is a world of difference between me walking in a Walmart tonight with a shirt that says men of integrity and the Apostle Paul saying of himself, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. So my shirt says, I'm a man of integrity. Paul's shirt says, I'm the chief sinner. Peter said to Jesus on one occasion, I, in your presence, am a sinful man. Do you see the difference? Peter is describing himself as a sinful man. Paul is describing himself as the chief sinner, and we're describing ourselves as men of integrity and men of honesty. And I get that you can only put so many words on the caption. I'm not so much knocking what it said. I'm knocking the fact that if we really get to thinking that, we've come a long way from where Paul was when he said, not that I have already attained or am already perfected. Paul was saying, I am still a work in progress, and God is still working on me. It's not so much what the shirt says. It's what you think in your heart. And when I look at my life, I say, Paul, I am with you, the chief sinner, a a sinful man with Peter, and here I can relate to this. I've not attained. I'm still being perfected. God is still working on me. And so the first key to Christ's likeness is an honest confession. I'm not there yet. 
but God is working on me. The second key to Christ-likeness is this, a passionate pursuit. In other words, we don't just say, well, I'm not there yet. When I get to heaven, I will be. No, that's where we start, but that's not where we end. Notice what Paul said in that verse. He said, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. I press on. In the Greek, that's, that, that, that Greek word was a word that was used for a sprinter. And here's an athlete, and he's in a race. And what is he doing? He's pressing on. He's running as fast as he can. He's not a marathon runner who's pacing himself for the long haul. He's a sprinter. He's giving it all that he has. He's running as fast as he can. There's movement. There's activity. There's effort. Now, the question is, how can we press on? How can we, become, how can we pursue Christ's likeness? How can we have that passionate pursuit? Well, I want to mention three things tonight. that I, I've thought about this much today, and I think these three things encompass the whole spectrum of what it takes to pursue Christ's likeness with passion. Number one, we need an unwavering faith in Jesus. In the Christian life, everything springs from faith. It all begins with our faith. You know what faith is? I thought about this analogy the other night. I was sitting home. I was looking around my living room, and I saw a lamp. And I saw that lamp, and I noticed that the lamp was plugged into the outlet. And since it was plugged into the outlet and the switch was on, there was light coming out. Did you know that if you take your faith, whether it's big or little, and you plug it into Jesus... Spiritually speaking, it's like the light comes on. But if you plug your faith into anything else, you're in the dark. And so pursuing Christ-likeness begins by an unwavering faith in Jesus, a faith that says, no matter what happens, I choose to trust Jesus. That's how we got saved. And that's how we live the Christian life. So it begins with that, that unwavering faith that says, I'm just trusting Jesus. Because, friend, look, you can do all the other things I'm about to mention, but if you're not trusting Jesus, you're in the dark. You need the light to come on, and you've got to get your faith plugged into Jesus. So there's that unwavering, unshakable faith. And then there's an unconditional love for others. You know, faith in Christ and love for others. And so we want to make sure that our hearts are free from bitterness. And I'm going to preach one more sermon Sunday on, on forgiveness and on bitterness. I think if I do many more sermons, people are going to get bitter towards me for preaching so many sermons on bitterness. So I'm going to do one more and that'll be enough. But we need to have an unconditional love for everybody on the earth. That is very important, that you would have nothing in your heart towards another person but love for them. That's what God has and that's what we should have. And then an undeterred Commitment to the spiritual disciplines of prayer and Bible reading. We're, on Sundays, we're studying some in the book of Acts on the Sundays that I'm preaching. And eventually, if God lets us live long enough, we'll get to the third chapter. And the first verse of that chapter says this, Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. Now, we'll deal with all that more later, but the point here is there was an hour of prayer in Jerusalem for devout Jews. There was a time every day when everybody stopped what they were doing, and they would pray for one hour. And uh, I'm just wondering tonight how many of us have an hour of prayer or a half hour of prayer or 15 minutes of prayer, but Bible reading and prayer and these other things that we can do. Church attendance, you're doing one of them tonight. 
It would have been much easier. Some of you have been up since 5, 6 o'clock this morning. You've worked all day. You're tired. You came to church tonight. You are, I mean, you are doing what I'm preaching about now. You are passionately, you are pursuing Christ. You are pressing on, and you're doing the right thing, and God will bless you for that. So we need a passionate pursuit. And then number three, we need a singular focus. A singular focus. Look in verse 13. Paul said, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. Again, I'm not there. I'm not all that I'm going to be. I'm not perfect. No, but one thing I do. Paul had reduced the entire Christian life down to one thing. One thing I do. What is it, Paul, that you do? Well, when we read what he does, it looks like two things. But it's really just one thing. He says, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. You say, well, that's two things. Paul said one thing. No, it's one thing. Because the one thing is a singular focus. And he's describing it here. There are two aspects to this, but it's just one thing. Paul said, I have learned that if my mind is right, if my focus is right, if my thoughts are right, I have learned that that I, I become more like Christ. I'm stronger in my faith. My love is, is, is great for other people. Well, Paul, what is this one thing? Well, he begins by saying, forgetting those things which are behind. You see, as Paul was thinking about his focus, he knew this. If he was always looking to the past, he wouldn't truly be living in the present. And he wouldn't be looking towards the future. So we have to forget those things in the past. Now, I was thinking about this today. We all have a past. And the older we live, the longer, the more past we have, right? We all have a past. And all of us have three things in our past. And it's not possible for you to have anything else in your past than one of these three things. We have good things. We have bad things. And we have sinful things. All of us can look back to our past and we see, good, we see the blessings of God. And, and many times when, when Paul said forgetting those things in the past, he's not saying that he had failed to remember what happened in the past. Because we know in other places Paul's telling us all kind of things happened in his past. He's not saying he had no memory or that he never spent any time reflecting on that. He's just saying he didn't live there. He, he, he lived in the moment. He lived with his focus on God. But the good things in our past, we should be thankful for them. For our, for our families, from, from, you know, the, the family from which we came, the place where we were born, the, uh, the house where I was talking to one of our members yesterday, Doug and Jan Phelps, and they've gone out of town uh, today for a short vacation. But he was telling me yesterday about the house where he was born in Fredericksburg. And then he has a painting in their house of, 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 that, of that house. And we should be thankful for, for where we have come from, for what God has brought us through. We should be thankful for our salvation, for the day that God saved us. We should be thankful for that. The beautiful girl that was your granddaughter tonight, baptized. What a spe- Is that you right there on the front row? Look, you look like an angel here tonight. You will never forget your baptism. What a special, special day. When you get to be our age and even older, you'll look back on this night and say, that was one of the most special days I've ever had in my life. I got baptized, my family was there, and this good-looking guy preached a great sermon after my ba- <laughs> See, now you're having to lie to say that, right? So we're just kidding. But you'll remember this day for the rest of your life. We should all remember that uh, and, and be thankful for it. Maybe you can't remember all the specifics about it if it's been a long time ago, but you remember there was a time when you got saved. We should be thankful for the good things in our lives and for the, for the prayers God has answered and for the victories that God has given us. We should be thankful for that. 
when uh, I had a birthday recently, and um, we were, I was together with, with some of the family, and my mother brought me this little cupcake, not a cupcake that you can eat, but a cupcake that if you squeeze it, it sings happy birthday to you. And uh, she said, now you squeeze this, John. It'll sing to you all day long. And, and I, I squeezed it until about I couldn't take any more of that. But, uh, but what makes that special, back in 2019, when she was going through cancer treatment, she bought that, or I bought it. I don't know who bought that. Who, who bought that? For, did, did, did I buy it for Well, it came back around. I bought that for her in the gift shop of MD Anderson. And in, 19, uh, in 2019, on her birthday, we had some, a dinner that night. I had taken some Mexican food to their house, and she, we were fixing to go to MD Anderson for her to have something done that night, and she just sat there at the table, and she just kept playing that cupcake. And now she, So that cupcake, to me, has great sentimentality. And I'm saying all of us should be able to look back on things in our lives and say, God, thank you for what you've done, for prayers you've answered, for diseases you've healed, for needs you've met, for problems you've solved, for making a way where I thought there was no way. God, you made a way. We all have good things in our past that we should be thankful for. Amen? But we all have some bad things too. We've all been through things that are bad, that are hard, sometimes not fair, sometimes don't make sense. And we have to we have to forget those things in the sense we can't dwell on them and we can't live in. We can remember how God saw us through, and we should remember that. Now, these bad things. Every bad thing that you have in your past was either caught. Now, it could have been your sin, but I've already mentioned sinful things. We know for the sinful things in our past, we have to just confess those sins, repent of those sins, and receive God's forgiveness and listen to me. If you have been forgiven of some sin in your past, you're not doing anybody any good by making yourself feel guilty over something God has forgiven. And I think sometimes we feel like, well, just to show God that I'm really sorry, I'm going to just carry this guilt with me. Well, that's, that's admirable on the one hand because we should be remorseful and sorry of our sins. But it's really better if we just accept God's forgiveness and as R.T. Kendall says, honor the blood and just move on. Listen, friend, you and I can't have a higher standard than God has. And if God has said the blood of Jesus has washed our sins away, who are we to say it hasn't? It has. And so it, you know, after we have repented and been forgiven, we really honor the Lord better by just thanking him and accepting that forgiveness. So that, you know, some of the things in our past could be our own sins. They, certainly they are. But I'm talking tonight here about bad things that, that came from circumstances beyond our control. Or maybe something that a person did. You didn't, it wasn't your idea. You didn't do it. They hurt you. You didn't hurt them. And so you'd think, well, how do I deal, how do I deal with some of these things? And it's been interesting in the couple of, three, couple of sermons or so I've preached on this bitterness and forgiveness and holding a grudge. How many people have reached out and said, John, I'm so glad you're talking about it because this is something that I really struggle with. Well, look, if it's a, if it's a circumstance, if it's something that happened, not necessarily caused by a person, but it's something that just happened, I would encourage you to apply the serenity prayer to that situation. I can remember when I was a junior or senior in high school, I took geometry. And my teacher's name was Miss Artis. Joanne Artis was the teacher of my geometry class. 
And on the wall in that class, she had the serenity prayer. And by the grace of God, I passed that class and got out of there. I never really learned geometry very well, but I came out knowing the, the, the serenity prayer. And I can tell you this, through the years, that prayer has done me more good than geometry. I, I mean, no offense to those of you who teach geometry, because it is important that we know the angles and things. But I'll tell you, it's more important that we know that prayer. Here it is. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. The courage to change the things I can. And the wisdom to know the difference. And that third part is key because sometimes we don't know, you know, what, can, can I change this or can I not? But in your past, you have good things. Be thankful. Bad things. Accept those things that you cannot change. And for the people who have hurt you, just forgive them and let it go. And we'll talk more Sunday morning about that doesn't mean that what they did wasn't wrong. That doesn't mean doesn't mean a lot of things, but it means that you don't want to carry that with you. Let it go. And to the future, Paul said, one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward, reaching forward to those things which are ahead. What was Paul saying? Paul was saying, the things that God has planned for me in my future are greater than the things I've experienced in my past. And that is true for all of us. And so we want to look forward to those better things. And so if we're going to become more like Christ, what do we need? An honest confession. I'm not there yet. I'm still a work in progress. A passionate pursuit to press on. A singular focus. Our mind and our focus is on Jesus, the person of Jesus Christ. Not circumstances, not other people. Jesus. Trusting him and pleasing him. And then lastly, we need a heavenly perspective. Now look in verse 17. Paul said, brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. In other words, there are many people in the world who don't, who don't know Jesus, who don't love Jesus, who don't respect Jesus. Watch this. Whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame who set their mind on earthly things. Paul said, don't set your mind on earthly things. These things are passing away. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. And so Paul said we need a, a, a heavenly perspective. You know, sometimes if you're like me, and I think we're all similar, but if you're like me, sometimes you look at what's happening in the world culturally, politically, and you look at it, and you try to look at it objectively and biblically, everything that happens. And if you're anything like me, sometimes you just say, I don't feel like I have a home down here on this earth. I, mean, I just don't feel like I have a group I fit with. And I was reading somebody, I don't know if you ever watched the show, Everybody Loves Raymond. I've spent... My sermons would be much better had I never been introduced to that show because I have spent way too much time watching that. But one of my favorite actors is Patricia Heaton. She played Deborah on that show. And she is a dedicated Christian. She is, uh, 
she loves the Lord. I'd, I've, I've tried to get her, to, if we could get her to come speak to something special for women. I don't know that'll ever happen. I don't necessarily agree with every last thing that she says, but I agree with much of what she says, if not most of what she says. And I read something that she had said some years ago. She said, you know, when I look at what is happening in the world today, I don't feel like I have a home down here. And then she said this, but as Christians, we're not supposed to have a home down here. Our citizenship is in heaven. And I think sometimes... We get too attached. And that's what Paul said to this one group, he said, that, that, who set their mind on, on earthly things. Our citizenship, our citizenship is in heaven. Listen, my earthly citizenship, I'm an American citizen. I'm proud to be an American citizen. I'm a resident of the state of Texas. I'm thankful for that. I live in Harris County. Praise God for that. And I love the city of Pasadena. So I don't have anything bad to say about any of that stuff in that respect. But I'll tell you this, my ultimate citizenship is not in any of those places, and neither is yours. Our ultimate citizenship is in heaven with Jesus. That's our home. And he said when we get there, he's, God's going to transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. How many here tonight are thankful that one of these days you're going to get a new body? Say amen. You're going to get a new body. You're going to get a new mind. Have you ever been in a conversation with somebody and y'all were talking back and forth and, and uh, you had this thought run through your mind and you said, hey, there, there was a couple things I wanted to tell you. And they said, okay. And you told them the first thing and then they said, what was the second thing? And you couldn't remember what it was. Has that ever happened? Well, it has to me. Sometimes it happens in front of a lot of people. You forget what you were going to say. Let me tell you, when we get to where we're going, we're never going to lose our train of thought. We're never going to take another pill. Some of you here tonight are in chronic pain. You can barely sleep because you have such pain. We're going to a place where there'll be no more sickness, no more sorrow, no more sadness, no more pain. The former things have passed away. Some of you tonight may have been rolled in here, rolled yourself in here in a wheelchair. We're going to a place where there are no wheelchairs, there are no walkers, there are no hospitals. There are no nursing homes. There are no uh, places, long-term rehab facilities. There are no cemeteries. There are no graveyards. There are no funeral homes. We are going to a place where we will live with a perfect God in a perfect environment in a perfect body forever and forever. And Paul said, now see, Paul's saying this to himself. He's in prison. Man, if you were in prison, you'd need to remind yourself you're going to a better place. And he says, our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the things that we can do that will help us grow and be more like Christ is every day of our lives to think this could be the day that Jesus comes for us. You know, I mean, I, it could be. I, if we thought of that more often, I don't know about you, but when Jesus comes back, I don't want Jesus to find me sinning. I don't want Jesus to find me doing something I shouldn't be doing. I don't want Jesus to find me wasting time, although sometimes we need to watch a sitcom or a ball game in a movie or relax. We need relaxing. I get that. But when Jesus comes back, I want him to find me doing something that would honor him and that would please him 
so that we would not have to be ashamed at his coming. I encourage you tonight. Look, I know you love God or you wouldn't be in church on a Wednesday night. You're in the same boat I'm in. We're still works in progress. We're not there yet. But we should say with Paul tonight, by the grace of God, we want to press on to become a little bit more like Jesus every day so that one of these days when we see him, he'll be pleased and he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. Amen. Father, I thank you tonight for old Paul there in prison telling us how we can grow and become more like Jesus and how even in adverse circumstances, if we'll have our focus and our mind and our thoughts and our hearts on Jesus, that every day we'll become a little bit more like him. Now, with your head bowed and eyes closed tonight, let me just... With your head bowed and eyes closed, I won't drag this out, but let me just ask you, grade yourself on these four keys to Christ-likeness. I'm not going to re-preach it, but just grade yourself. An honest evaluation? Can you say with Paul, I'm not there yet. When I compare myself to Jesus, I've got a long way to go. Friend, that's every, that should be every one of us saying that. How about this? A passionate pursuit. Are you passionately, eagerly pressing on every day to become more like Jesus? How about a singular focus where the most important thing in your life is God? Knowing Him, serving Him, pleasing Him. And how about a heavenly perspective? Do you spend more time thinking about this life, the politics of it all, the the cultural trends, things happening down here, your own personal finances, stocks and bonds, trips and none of that's bad. In fact, all of that can be good as long as we remember we're just passing through. Our citizenship is in heaven. Would you ask God tonight to make you more like Jesus? Now, some here tonight, you say, John, I want to be more like Jesus too, but I don't know Jesus. I, I, if I died tonight, I don't know that I would go to heaven. I don't know what would happen to me. Well, friend, let me assure you tonight that God has brought you to this service to get that settled. We're going to take one minute tonight before we end this service and give you a chance to make peace with God by receiving Jesus Christ to be your personal Lord and Savior. You say, John, how do I do that? You do that by repenting of your sins, asking God to forgive you and help you to change. He will help you. The Holy Spirit has to help us to repent. You do that by asking Jesus to come live in your heart and then by trusting Him. After you invite Him in, you trust Him and you believe that He'll do what He's promised to do. He has said, and the scripture says, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so on this Wednesday night, if you would say, John, I need to be saved. I need to know for sure that Jesus is living in my heart. Pray this prayer. Say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Forgive my sins and make me a Christian. I ask you to save me. I trust you to do it. Welcome to my heart, Lord. Begin now to make me the person that you want me to be.